As we prepare to open God's word, let us first pray that he would bless it to us. Our Father, thank you for giving us the opportunity to come together as your people this morning to hear from you out of your word. I pray that you will illumine your word for us by your spirit so that we may more fully understand the truths found in it. Help us to have ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to receive what you set before us this morning in Holy Scripture. Help us to never take for granted the great blessing of your word, for it is our daily bread and your very revelation of yourself to us. We pray that you will be honored by the reading and teaching of your word. And we pray these things in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Well, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. You will find it on page 1293 of many of the Pew Bibles, or you may find it very close to the very back of your Bible, just before Revelation, Jude, and the Johns, and right after Hebrews and James. And as we read, let us pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Well, as we begin to consider our passage today, I want you to imagine that you were adopted into a family with exorbitant amount of wealth. And with this adoption comes an amazing inheritance that is beyond your wildest dreams. This inheritance not only is amazing, but it is kept for you in a most secure vault. No one will ever get into it. No one can ever cause this inheritance to go away or diminish. And if that's not good enough, you also have been assigned a security detail such that Nothing will possibly keep you from obtaining this inheritance. Well, although this might seem too good to be true, this is only about an earthly inheritance. But what we see in our passage today is an everlasting heavenly inheritance 
that we as believers can hope in. And as we look at our passage today, we'll see that this inheritance of salvation is obtained for us and that God's regenerative, regenerative work produces in us an assailable joy at this salvation. And we'll explore this idea in this passage in three main points. The regeneration of the saints in verses 3 through 5, the resulting joy in verses 6 through 9, and the revelation of the prophets in verses 10 through 12. So as we begin to consider our passage, we'll look at verses 3 through 5 and what Peter has to say about the regeneration of the saints. Peter begins by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. One thing that we must understand is what it means to be born again, because this becomes language that we use as Christians, but sometimes we forget the realities of what this actually means. Uh, When we talk about our really specific theological categories, this is also what we refer to when we say regeneration. Regeneration and being born again are talking about the same reality. And this reality is probably most clearly and succinctly shown in Scripture in John chapter 3. In this passage, Jesus is meeting with the teacher of the law, Nicodemus. And he's teaching Nicodemus that unless you are born again, you cannot even see the kingdom of God. This is getting at the idea that all of us, ever since Adam, are born into sin, such that we can't even see heavenly realities. We are blind to them. We must be born again in order to see them. And Jesus goes on in John 3, to tell us that this is not another physical birth, as Nicodemus was confused about, but rather this is a spiritual birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Therefore, those who are born of the Spirit, those who are born again, can indeed see heavenly realities that the Spirit has enabled them to when they could not before. And lastly, Peter says that it was according to God's great mercy that he caused us to be born again. Well, the very nature of of the language of born again tells us why exactly this is merciful. Just as in our physical birth we had no part to play, so also in our spiritual birth we have no part to play. That it is God who does this to us. It is nothing we did to deserve it. It is nothing we did to bring it about. Rather, God does it to us. Therefore, it is greatly merciful that we have indeed been born again. But Peter moves on to tell us exactly what we have been born again to. What is the purpose of this being born again? Peter says that we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, it shouldn't surprise us as to why our hope is living. In fact, Peter tells us right away. It's living because Jesus Christ is not dead. He has been raised. We do not have our faith. We do not have hope in only a crucified Savior. But we have hope in a Savior that was crucified and raised to life. Therefore, our hope that we have in Him is living. It is not dead. Just as Christ lives, so also Our faith 
and our hope in him is living. But Peter goes on to speak a bit about what specifically this living hope is. In verses 4 and 5, he gets more and more specific as to what we have indeed been born again to. Verse 4, he says that we have been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So first off, he gives us three modifiers to this inheritance. Firstly, he says that our inheritance is imperishable. This means that our inheritance cannot be touched by death or decay. It will not perish. It will not go away. Secondly, he tells us that this inheritance is undefiled. So not only is this inheritance pure and free from evil, but also it was not obtained by unjust means or unrighteous means, but rather it was obtained for us by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It is an undefiled inheritance because it was obtained for us by pure means. And not only that, but we ourselves, when we fully uh, take hold of this inheritance in our glorification, will also be made undefiled and free from sin. But thirdly, Peter says that this inheritance is unfading. This means this inheritance will not fade over time or be lost. This is not something that we can expect to diminish over time, but rather it is an everlasting inheritance. It will not go away. It is always going to be there for us. And lastly, Peter speaks of not only a um, summary of these three things, but also the reason for which these three things are true. He says that this inheritance is kept in heaven for you. We read in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us not to lay up treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, but to lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. So the very fact that our inheritance is kept in heaven for us tells us that it will not be Uh, that it is indeed imperishable, it is indeed undefiled, it is unfading, by the very fact that it is in heaven, that it's kept there for us. This is the secure vault in which our inheritance lies. Therefore, nothing can happen to our inheritance, and it is not going anywhere. But what about the security detail? This is what Peter speaks of in verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only is our inheritance being guarded such that nothing can happen to it, but we ourselves are being guarded. Our security detail is God himself. He keeps us so that we may indeed obtain this inheritance. So we are born again to a salvation that is kept by God. And it's God's power that keeps us. So therefore, this is an aspect of our doctrine of perseverance of the saints. It's not us that keeps, that keeps ourselves in the faith. It's rather God himself that keeps us so that we obtain this inheritance of salvation. Even as Ephesians 1, 13-14 remind us that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. God keeps us so that we may indeed obtain the inheritance that is kept for us in heaven. 
But how exactly does God guard us? Well, he guards us by his power, but he guards us through faith. And so it should be no surprise to us, because as always, it is through faith that we are saved from beginning to end. But it's God's power that not only creates this faith in us, but also sustains it. He is the one who keeps us in the faith. But Peter moves on, lastly in verse 5, to speak about this salvation. This salvation is ready to be revealed in the last time. Sometimes when we read something like this in Scripture, it may confuse us. We may think, well, I've already been saved. Hasn't this salvation already been revealed? Well, multiple times in Scripture, uh, there are times where Scripture speaks about our salvation as something that has already happened. There are times in Scripture speaks of it as something that is happening now. And there are times like here where it speaks about something that there is still a hope for. And this is where it's really helpful to have some of our technical theological categories. And so it is true that we have already been saved. This is the aspect of our justification. We have already been justified. There is no future justification to look forward to. We already stand before our God as fully righteous in his sight because of Christ's righteousness. Similarly, there is a sense in which we are being saved today. This is our doctrine of sanctification, that day by day we are being saved more and more from sin. We are being purified, that the Holy Spirit is conforming us to our Savior's image. But thirdly, there is an aspect of salvation that we are still waiting for. This is the aspect of our glorification. That there is, although we have already been saved and although we are being saved, there is an aspect of our salvation that we are still waiting on, that we still hope for. And it is in our glorification that we receive this inheritance fully that Peter speaks of. This is why he speaks of this salvation as ready to be revealed. Because just as our salvation is ready to be revealed, also this inheritance we will receive at the time when this salvation is fully revealed. But with this great inheritance of salvation in mind, shouldn't this bring about a response in us? And this is what Peter gets to in verses 6 through 9, talking about the resulting joy. Peter says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Therefore, Peter gives us verses 3 through 5 to give us a reason to rejoice. And he, he brings up uh, this theme that he will continue to speak on for the rest of First Peter, this theme of suffering. Now, this is not the main point of our passage, but it, became, it becomes the main point and one of the main themes that Peter speaks of the rest of this book. And he wants us to know, not that, uh, at least not at this point, that our trials themselves bring us joy, but rather we have a reason to rejoice even in the midst of our trials. So verses 3 through 5 is meant to give us that reason. We don't always rejoice in our trials, but Peter's focus here is not, re- is not on reproving those who do not rejoice, but rather 
giving them a reason to rejoice even in the midst of their trials. However, Peter does go on to speak of a way that we may be rejoicing even in our trials themselves. Peter says in verse 7 that these trials come so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, these trials are meant to test and prove the genuineness of our faith. And Peter uses the metaphor of gold. Now, gold is still a pretty precious metal today, but especially in biblical times, it was very precious. And the way that gold is refined is that it's put through fire such that When the gold is put through fire, all of the impurities of it are melted and burned away, such that all that is left is pure gold. However, Peter says that even this pure gold that has been refined by fire will eventually pass away. But Peter says that our faith is is more precious than gold. What Peter is saying is that these trials test our faith just as fire tests gold. But these trials test our faith in such a way that our faith does not fade away as gold does. Our faith will remain. And as we we recognized when we went through verses 3 through 5, it is God who causes it to remain. And one of the means by which he does so is these trials. He brings these into our lives to test the genuineness of our faith, to strengthen our faith. And therefore, what comes out of of these trials and this testing of our faith is meant to be that our faith would be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, how wonderful is this? That even though we know that it is God who is keeping us in the faith, that eventually in our glorification, when Jesus Christ comes again, we will be commended for our faithfulness. How wonderful to be commended by our Savior. What a a great truth to think of, that we'll be commended and that our, our suffering and our trials will be recognized. How great that our Savior will will say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. But Peter moves on in verse 8, to speak about, um, although he just talked about the revelation of Jesus Christ, he realizes that that has not happened yet. Verse 8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. This is speaking of the fact that all of our faith, that our faith is, is without sight. Ever since Christ ascended, our faith is without sight. It's not a blind faith, but we have not seen our Savior. We hope in him. And Jesus teaches in John 20, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. This is true of us because we have not seen our Savior. We can look back to his work on the cross But we have not seen him in the flesh. 
And therefore, our love for Christ and our faith in him is not dependent upon our sight of him. But Peter reminds us that even though we have not seen him, even though we do not now see him, our faith causes us to rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory because we have this sure foundation, this sure hope for an inheritance, this salvation that we look forward to that we have not yet seen fully revealed is something that we have a blessed hope in. And this hope uh, 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 ends in verse 9 with the obtaining of the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, in what way is the outcome of our faith the salvation of our souls? Because we want to remember that um, our faith is instrumental in our salvation, that faith is the means by which we take hold of Christ's work. And therefore, the best way to understand this phrase of outcome of our faith is that the salvation of our souls is the thing that our faith hopes for. Therefore, this is the end, this is the outcome, this is the end goal of what our faith hopes for. And this is indeed what it will receive. This is what our faith hopes in and this is what our faith receives. And this salvation that Peter has been speaking of was not just revealed to us in the New Testament. In fact, it was also proclaimed beforehand by the prophets who similarly hoped for this same salvation. And this is what Peter gets at with the revelation of the prophets in verses 10 through 12. Peter says that concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Therefore, this same salvation that we have been reading about in verses 3 through 9 is the same salvation that the prophets prophesied about. There's no other plan of salvation. It's just the one. And these prophets eagerly wanted to know when and how this salvation would be revealed in the sufferings and glories of Christ. How great is it that we have this privileged status that we can actually look back on the time that they were looking forward to. The prophets hoped for the coming Messiah. We can look back and see that the coming Messiah has already come to save us. And if it was a joy for the prophets to look forward to this salvation, how much more is it a joy for us who have seen the revelation of this salvation already come in our Savior? We have been able to see the sufferings and the glories of Christ whereas the prophets only had a snapshot of these things. But Peter also says in verse 11 that they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It's interesting that Peter speaks of the Spirit as the Spirit of Christ, One thing that we must understand is that too often we think of the Spirit only being at work in the New Testament. We think especially of Pentecost when the Spirit comes down. But we must remember that the Spirit was just as much at work in the Old Testament. 
It was by the Spirit that these prophets, that these prophets prophesied about the coming salvation. And it's especially interesting that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ here because we're talking about the Old Testament. Sometimes we also forget that Christ is, is uh, here in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. We think of his incarnation in the New Testament and we forget that beca- before he was incarnate, he has also always been the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. And so, Spirit of Christ emphasizes that both the Spirit and Christ were there in the Old Testament. And it's the same Spirit by which we received the gospel that we had today. But it's interesting that Peter speaks of how, in verse 12, it was revealed to these prophets that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. These prophets were aware that they were not prophesying for their own day. They they were aware that the Messiah was actually not going to come in their own day. That is what they looked forward to. They looked forward with such eagerness because they knew that the salvation that would eventually be revealed is the same salvation by which they are saved. And therefore, these prophecies from the Old Testament stress the continuity of the covenant of grace, that these prophets hope for the same salvation that we have found. There is no other salvation. Rather, Christ the Messiah is the Messiah of all who have faith in him, of all of God's people. They realized it was not for them to experience these things, but it was for us. And thus they served us and looked forward to both our salvation and theirs. But Peter says that it was, uh, it was the Holy Spirit who preached the good news to us, but it was also the Holy Spirit that preached the good news to them. The same Spirit by which we came to receive the gospel is the spirit by which they they knew this salvation was coming and they knew this salvation would be for them. Both the prophets and those preaching the gospel today are preaching the same message concerning the same salvation. Well, we get something very interesting at the very end of our passage, something that uh, we could spend a lot of time on, uh, but uh, it's helpful to just understand what might Peter be getting at here. Peter says that these are things into which angels long to look. I think one thing that must be understood is that sometimes with the way we were brought up and the way that we've read Scripture, we start to think of, of angels as these wonderful beings that are um, of, in a greater status than us. However, we are the ones who have been adopted into, Christ, into God's family. We are the ones who receive the insane inheritance of Christ. We are the ones who are brothers and sisters of Christ. We are the ones who are made in the image of God. And we see that we have a privileged status above the angels in two ways. First off, 
this salvation is not for the angels. It is for us. There was no plan of salvation for the angels. There was a plan of salvation for us, God's people. But how wonderful is it that the angels still marvel at this great salvation, even though it doesn't bring salvation to them, even though it doesn't concern them specifically. And therefore, if the prophets and the angels are very interested in this gospel, it must be important. It must be important for us. If the prophets who were looking forward to the coming salvation, though we are looking back to the salvation that has already come, and if the angels, who are actually not specifically the recipients of this salvation, are looking forward to it so, so much more so, we should be rejoicing and marveling at the great salvation that we have received. And therefore, we as God's people should rejoice in this same salvation that the angels marvel at and that the prophets who went before us prophesied about and were saved by as well. Therefore, let us be encouraged, for this living hope of salvation is assuredly waiting for us, and we may boldly hope for it. Even in the midst of our trials, we can rejoice in the salvation that has been the hope of God's people throughout redemptive history. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you again for the great blessing of your word. I pray that what we heard out of your word today would take up root in our hearts by your spirit. We thank you for the wonderful inheritance of salvation that you have obtained for us and for the great comfort this is, even in the midst of our trials and tribulations. We pray that we would always remember the wonderful things you have done for us and that we would live lives of thankfulness for all of your benefits. We pray all these things in the name of our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well,